Hello, and welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today, we're going to have another very special show. We have invited someone that I've been wanting to interview for the longest time, John Perkins, who is known variously for a number of different hats he has worn so far in our wonderful world. Originally, he was very well known for a book he wrote called Confessions of an Economic Hitman. It became a bestseller for a long time on the New York Times bestseller list. He was a chief economist at a major international consulting firm and advised the World Bank, the United Nations, IMF, United States Treasury Department, Fortune 500 companies, as well as leaders of countries across the world, Africa, Asia, Latin America, the Middle East, and beyond. It was a book that was also released in 2016, updated, so it includes many of the activities that were done way back when John was very active uh, in that space as chief economist, and actually it continues on through today. But John has made a tremendous shift and that's a lot of what we'll be talking about today, and has now and has been for many years the founder and board member of Dream Change and the Pachamama Alliance, through which we originally met, both nonprofit organizations devoted to establishing a world future generations that will inherit our beautiful world. Um, he has lectured at Harvard, Oxford, and more than 50 other universities around the world. He has uh, written some 10 books. He has been featured on ABC, NBC, CNN, all the big a acronyms, CNBC, NPR, and now A Better World. So it's really a pleasure his his accolades go on and on, and I'd love to be able to get on with our conversation here so you can learn more about John directly, and uh, it will be very illuminating. It always is for me when talking with John Perkins. So welcome, John, to A Better World. A pleasure to have you. Thank you so much, Mitchell. It's great to be with you. Finally, like you said, I'm we've so tried to make this happen for a while. Absolutely. Absolutely. Finally, we got wise enough to actually simply book the time, and uh, I'm so glad that we have. Uh, John, you know, if you would, I mean, your your past and your journey is so um, informative, and it models exactly the kind of thing we love to show here on A Better World and to sign of showcase someone who starts in one place in their lives and looks around, gets educated. It's, it's the hero's journey in the classical sense of uh, Joseph Campbell's outlining it in his book, Hero of the Thousand Faces, you know. And uh, you have lived such an archetypal life from that point of view. Could you just tell us a little bit about where you began and what was going on in your mind and what accounts for what became the shift, and then we can move on from there. Uh, well, sure. You know, I, I think when you mention education, you're getting educated, um, that kind of says it all. Because <laughs> education uh -huh. really determines our perception of ourselves and the world, and our perceptions yes. sort of determine our reality. Uh, so I, was, I, I went to business school, 
uh, you know, at a very early age when I got when I went to college, and uh, then um, I joined the Peace Corps right out of business school because I was trying to avoid the draft. It was the Vietnam uh-huh. War was raging, uh, and you didn't have bone spurs, I guess. Right, I couldn't. Yeah, I was physically, I was physically in too good a shape to get out. So yes. the Peace Corps sent me into the Amazon rainforest uh, to live with indigenous oh. people called the Shwa, and I spent three years in Ecuador. And then when I came out, I I did what I'd been trained to do in business school. I became an economist for a major consulting firm in Boston, and rose fairly quickly to chief economist. Uh, the original chief economist was fired, and the captain still so they put me in. And I, uh-huh. I developed a, depart- a, a department of about 50 people. And my job then was basically uh, to exploit third world, what we call third world countries, developing countries around the world, uh, getting their resources yeah. for our corporations, oil, minerals, et cetera. And I can get into more detail about that if you would like later. Uh, but that sure. was what I'd been educated to do. And I thought I was doing the right thing. I thought what I was actually doing was helping these countries develop their economies and helping the poor. And what I, what I came to understand over time, probably partly because I also had had this experience in the Peace Corps, which was another form of informal education, I saw that, mm-hmm. in fact, what we were doing was helping a few rich families in those countries as well as our own corporations, but not helping the majority of the people. And that was itself another education. And so after... After 10 years of, of going through that, I, I got out, I quit, and I pretty much devoted the rest of my life to trying to expose that system and mm-hmm. change it because it's really, it's really created an economic system that's failing us around the world, a colonized death economy that's, that's, that's consuming itself into extinction. And we all know the glaciers are melting, the oceans Horizon. Sure. Fires are raging in California. The, you know, the, the world's going through a tremendous transformation, and, and, and human beings are causing a lot of that. And the very job that I had as a corporate colonizer uh, mm-hmm. was uh, a large part of that. So, so now it's my job to try to change that. Yes, indeed. My God, it's so interesting that you had – I wasn't aware of the early experience you had with the indigenous people, but now it makes a lot of sense to me how the transformation in your own life uh, came about. Um, I'm just curious, though. Um, since you were chief economist for some 10 years or so and you were dealing with some uh, pretty difficult uh, – propositions, value propositions with such people, as I recall, the uh, president of Panama and several others in Central and South America, of making them offers they could not refuse, so to speak. Um, Was it not dawning on you at some point that what you thought was serving the good of actually helping third world countries develop um, and enjoy some of the the wealth and prosperity of the more developed nations. Um, was it not occurring to you that there was something seriously amiss in the way, this way of doing business? It, it, it finally got to me, but, you know, we still do this. and still taught in business schools, and you can show um, statistically through econometric models uh, that when you invest a large amount of money into infrastructure in a, in a poor country, things like uh, power plants and industrial parks and highways and ports, 
the economy grows. It does. Um, yeah. GDP grows. But yes. and, and so that's a classic model, and so it looks good. Uh, but probably partly because I'd been in the Peace Corps, I was fluent in Spanish, uh, and I'd seen the other side. Over time, I began to see, well, wait a minute. The, the 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 models are skewed in favor of the very wealthy, because in mm-hmm. many of these countries, a few a few wealthy families basically made up the economic statistics. And you know, Mitchell, that's true today. We know in the United States, there's three individuals who have as many assets as half the rest of the country. The bottom, the, yes. the, the bottom part from a, from a financial standpoint, the bottom half of the country. And so, yes. if half of our country, the poorest half of our country, is not making any progress at all or even making negative process. But if those three individuals are making mm. 10, 12% a year, the statistics are going to make it look like the whole country is doing well. And mm-hmm. that's true mm-hmm. all over the world. And I began to see that. And, and the, the man you mentioned in, in Panama, the chief of, of uh, the head of state there, Omar Torrijos, uh, he, he did not buy the deals that I was trying to sell him, that, uh, uh, sure. of, of taking all this money, putting his country deep into debt to hire U.S. Yeah. corporations to build these infrastructure projects. And the corporations would get wealthy mm-hmm. in the process, and many of the wealthy Panamanians would, but he, he wouldn't buy that. And he helped me understand that this whole system uh, was flawed. It, 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 it was not yes. a true view of reality. And it, yeah. t- it took me a while to get that. And I have to say, Mitchell, in response to your question, that yes. once I understood it, I did not want to understand it. Because mm-hmm. I grew up the son of a school teacher in New Hampshire, never had much money, never traveled in rural New Hampshire. Now suddenly mm-hmm. I'm making a lot of money. I'm flying first class around the world. I'm meeting with presidents. I'm staying in the best hotels, eating at the finest restaurants all over the world. Yeah. And I was living what I thought was the American dream, so I really didn't want to admit to the reality sure. that I was now seeing. And I think that's something that strikes a lot of people. I think it was a lot of people in that kind of position. Uh, yes. It's easy then to justify, especially when the schools and everybody else is telling you that what you're doing is a good yes. thing. Yes, exactly. Now, this is a this is a very critical moment in your own growth and if more people can get this message, John, uh, it could be pivotal in a lot of people's growth because, as you're saying, the consensus of Western society is that it is okay to do all of these things. It's, it's actually not only business as usual, it's good business as usual. And if you look at the economic model, as you're suggesting, uh, that has at its core exploitation of resources wherever they may be and the easier they are to access the better and the life of a president of a South American or Central American country or what have you is a small price to pay for the engines of the econ- of the economy to roar forward that's what I'm kind of hearing. And when you have all of the accolades and all of these powerful people and society at large behind you, and you're living the life of Riley, you know, and Perkins, you could say, uh, you know, you really don't see. That's just a what do you call it, a casualty? That's a um, like a side effect that 
a few people have to die along the way. It's it's a small price to pay. But of course, with your ultimately you had a breakthrough on the level, I would say, of, of your heart and soul that showed you that this is an enormous price to pay on a, how do I say, a more cosmic or universal humane level. And uh, that shifted your awareness completely to live a different kind of life. Yeah. Yeah, you know, colonization has been a part of human history for the last... Does that all make sense so, according to what you're you experienced? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and colonization is basically the appropriation of other cultures, economies, lands, resources, mines, and governments. Yes. I was colonizing. Yes. We were colonizing. And colonization has always been justified uh, by yes. the colonizing entity saying, well, you know, we're spreading, we're spreading Catholicism. We're, we're, we're going to help everybody go to heaven. Or exactly. We're spreading. You know, we're spreading uh, what, whatever it is we're spreading. We're spreading capitalism. In this case, we're spreading capitalism sure. and democracy. It's always justified that we're doing something to help these other people. And that's exactly yes. what, you know, I was trained to believe and and did believe for a long time. And when I saw that yes. that wasn't true, I didn't want to see it. And that's that's so typical of that's so many and so good people. You know I mean? Listen, Mitchell, we, you and I, we all know that we shouldn't be driving around in these great big cars burning a lot of fuel, and, and more of us now are going to electric cars, but even those, are, yes. those power plants are still run by fossil fuels. We all That's know right. that we need to change our lifestyles, but we're not yes. doing it very well. We're not doing it very quickly. We're beginning to, really but, true. you know, it's hard. It's hard right. to accept that reality. Right. You know, really something that comes to mind, John, in listening to you speak and outline your your past experience is um, it's almost like the denial of an alcoholic that he does not have a drinking problem. Uh, others around him see it, but he himself does not because the pleasure or the other benefits he gets of escaping certain aspects of his life, what have you. Um, are way more kind of paramount than him seeing clearly what he's doing to himself and, you know, to his environment, i.e., you know, his family, his workplace, etc. Um, you know, You know what I mean? And so as you're saying, you didn't want to see it. Just like you could say, uh, as I say, an alcoholic does not want to see his condition either. Um, you remind me also, and you probably know David Corton, who wrote, you know, several books and who's been a guest on this show several times as well, uh, When Corporations Rule the World. And the breakthrough he had, he, he set out in the world just as you did. Um, in his case, he was from Harvard, and he was out in Southeast Asia and the State Department uh, working on behalf of exporting U.S. capitalism so these other countries could get the benefit until – one day he saw in a conference, I think it was in, uh, could have been in Jakarta or so, that he heard some executives, I think it was from Coca-Cola, say, oh, these poor people here, they don't know how well we are exploiting them. We're getting such a fantastic labor force for for pennies on the dollar. This is fantastic. And all of a sudden, I'm I'm paraphrasing, so... Uh, bear with me, David. Um, but he had this realization. All of a sudden, he went, oh, well, you're kidding me. 
I thought you were here to benefit the local people and, of course, your company, company as well, but not at the expense of these people. And then he had the, it dawned on him as it dawned on you. Hey, <laughs> this is not kosher. You know, we've got to make a turnaround here. So are you familiar with his story? Oh, sure. David lives down about 10 minute walk down the street from me, and we have lunch together often. I've known David for years very well. Yes. Birds of a yeah. feather, right? Well, see, I must have intuited something like that. Oh, that's so funny. And here I am telling the whole story. You know it better than I do. Um, so, once you made that turnaround, John, you have me now, you know, I'm laughing at myself and blushing. Um, what what did you do next? What was your next uh, action once you had the realization and decided to shift gears? Yeah, well, I quit and I, I got a couple of partners and formed a, a company to uh, produce alternative uh, environmentally good energy projects. Um, oh, I, I, I thought I thought it was a way to try to redeem myself and. And and then yeah. also very shortly after that, I uh, started writing this book. And at the time, I decided I wanted to make it an expose and then include the stories of other people who had done similar things to me, uh, economic hitmen, and people we call the jackals. Now, the jackals are people who, if the economic hitmen fail, if we're not able to convince country presidents to uh, take on this debt and do what we want them to do, uh, the, the jackals go in and they either assassinate that heads of state or they overthrow governments. And, you know, we have a long history of that. Uh, Allende in, in Chile and Arbenz in sure. Guatemala and Mossadegh in Iran and, and Diem in sure. Vietnam. A long history of that. So, yes. um, and, and two of my clients were assassinated because they did not play my game. One of them is the one we mentioned, Omar Torrijos of Panama. The other one was Jaime Roldos of Ecuador. Both of them were, were, had tremendous integrity. Uh, they wouldn't uh, incur all this debt on their countries, and, and uh, mm-hmm. they were both taken out. Um, mm. So I started to write a book about and, and, and contacting these people. And yes. uh, very shortly after that, I received anonymous phone calls threatening my life and that of my infant daughter. Uh, yes. And then I was taken out to dinner by the president of a large engineering consulting firm, also in Boston, Stone & Webster, it had been one of our main rivals of the company. I just quit, and he took me out to dinner. He said, "Hey, you got a great resume, chief economist, and all that, and we'd like to use your resume in some of our proposals. Uh, you won't have to do any work for us. Just let us use your resume, and I'm prepared to write you a check tomorrow morning for five hundred thousand dollars." This was in the eighties, Mitchell. Five hundred dollars is something to laugh at today, but it was worth a bit That's more right. then. Yeah, yeah. And then he looks at me and he says, "Just don't write that book." So oh my. I'm being hit. I'm being hit the same way I'd hit heads of countries. I'm being yes. told, hey, here's a lot of yes. money, or you can face the jackals. So right. I took the money. Oh, my God. And I have to say, in yes. my own defense, I used the money yes. to go back to the Amazon, to go back to Latin America, to form nonprofits, mm-hmm. first Dream Change, and then Pachamama Lands, which you're very familiar with. Mm-hmm. And to write books mm-hmm. on indigenous people, and, and so much was fine with me writing books on indigenous people. I wrote sure. five books on shamanism and indigenous people, but I didn't yes. write the book that, uh, that that I'd wanted to write. 
Yeah, so that's what I did at that point. When you go but on, you or? did write. But you, so you did clearly write a book that has been a, a New York Times bestseller for you know a long period of time. But that's, are you saying yeah, that, that that wasn't the book that? Sorry. Yeah. So here's what happened. So I'm yeah. in the Amazon taking a group of people to study with the Schwa in the Amazon and uh, in 2000 and, and on 9/11, the 9/11. Yes. And uh, when I got home, I flew up to ground zero. And as I stood there looking down that pit, I knew I had to write this book. I had to expose what I had done. I just not that there was a direct connection, but but I just I knew I had mm-hmm. to come clean. And my contract with Stone and Webster had ended. Now it's been what, about over ten years. And um, oh, but this I time see. I decided I so would it was not a time write, limited what? agreement. It was a time limited agreement. Well, that you had actually, what happened was a new a new president came in. The old president was fired. A new president came in. I'd had a history with him in the past. He did not like me. We'd been rivals, so he, he yeah, he 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 fired me, basically. Oh. Uh, after 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 many years though of, of having that job, yes, of getting that money, I yes. didn't really have to ever do any work, like they said. Anyway, so yes. I um, yes, I see. That's so, interesting. So you were free. He fired you when you were free. Yeah, yeah. So, uh-huh. uh, but but I decided that this time I wouldn't contact anybody else. I, I would instead of writing an expose, I would write a personal confession. I wouldn't contact anybody else. I would just write about my life, and I wouldn't tell a soul I was writing it until it was mm-hmm. completely done and in the hands of a very good New York agent. I figured that mm-hmm. once it's in the hands of this agent, and he starts sending out the publishers. Uh, it's my best insurance policy because anybody at the CIA or NSA or any of those other alphabet organizations uh, yes. might want to stop my information. They, they would know that the worst thing they could do would be to kill me, and I'd become a martyr, and the book would sell millions and millions of copies, which eventually did. Yes. Anyway. And they would be completely but, but the, outed. Well, the, yeah, the book would get out there. They, the, the, what they don't want is for the book to get out there. So. Sure. I, I figured that once once the manuscript is done, and so you know, really yeah. the the message here. Oh no, I understand for, for sure. The west lesson for whistleblowers is, if you're going to blow the whistle, don't threaten to blow the whistle. Get all your information and, and get it and get yep. everything out there all in one swell, one fell swoop. Yes. Don't yes. threaten. Do it. Yes. So that's what Just I did. Just do it. And, yeah. And, 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 and yeah, after after nine eleven. So interesting. So you lined up everything. You personalized it so you weren't naming names as such. So that's a level of protection. But yet you were blowing the whistle on the reality of the conditions that you were asked to set up around the world with, of course, the CIA and other agencies backing and so, you know, these folks are really and agencies are wholly culpable and um, noted in everything that you did. Very interesting story. Very interesting story. So you then went on from there. You set up these nonprofit organizations. Uh, you, of course, in your process, met uh, Lynn and Bill Twist and others um, and helped, as I understand the story, you helped Lynn Twist interpret a dream 
that she had had uh, that you identified as coming from the dream culture known as the Achuar in Ecuador. Do you want to pick up on that and correct any well, error I may have in my understanding? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's part of the story. And, and, and the new book I have coming out this June is called Touching the Jagger, which is really goes into the story in detail, so it's very fresh on my mind. I'm working on it now. But the, oh, uh, great. you know, what, what, what really happened was that the Achua invited me out. I was living with the Schwa, their neighbors. Uh, the Achua had not been officially contacted until the mid-70s. When I lived with the Schwa in the 60s, the Achua were officially uncontacted. They invited me out, and they, and they, they said that they understood that the biggest threat in the world was no longer their neighbors, like the Schwa, they'd fought for hundreds of years over territorial issues, but the real threat mm-hmm. was the oil and mining was the oil and mining companies from my country, our countries, yes. the yes. developed world. And so, and then they said that the, the, the real threat beyond that was the perception that we have in our world of tremendous materialism of constantly mm-hmm. building more buildings and more cars, et cetera. And they wanted yes. to partner with people from that country to change the dream of the modern world because they understood that that was the real problem was the dream, the perception of the mm-hmm. modern world. And Lynn and I had been together in Guatemala at one point, and, and I had introduced her to a shaman there where she did have this incredible dream. And then that dream came back to haunt her. She was in Africa at the time working for the Hunger Project. She kept having this dream of these people, that she saw these faces that were painted with orange and black stripes. And mm-hmm. at some point, I, I was deep in the Amazon. She, she came home. She was extremely distressed by this. Uh, she tried to call me. I was still in the Amazon. When I got home, though, we talked, and she explained what, she was, what she'd seen. I said, well, it was the Archwa calling you and it just so happened that all of that was going on while I was with them and they were asking me to form a partnership with people in the United oh States who could help change the dream and when they were telling, asking me to do this, the only person I could keep thinking about was Lynn but I didn't think Lynn would be available because she was extremely mm-hmm. busy with the Hunger Project raising money, traveling sure. around the world but of sure. course she then had this dream and, and it struck her and so yes. when I interpreted it for her, and, and immediately she signed on, and not too many months after that, we took a group of about nine people and, and three trip leaders, to, including my 12-year-old daughter, time to mm-hmm. into the Atua territory. And, and uh, when they, after four days with the Atua, this these these nine people. Uh, donated $120,000 to the Pachamama Alliance, and, and it's, been, it's, been, it's been roaring ever since. Oh, my. Oh, thank you for that uh, story. Uh, you know, it, it helped to clarify. I mean, I had some of the rough outlines, but not that level of detail, so you thank did, you yes, for that. You did. Yeah, that is Me too. awesome. Until the book comes out, awesome. you'll, get, you'll, get, you'll really get the details in the book. There's a lot yeah. of Right, exactly. History behind it. Yeah. Sure, but we'll have you on again to kind of further explicate and expand on it. That would be that would be great. Absolutely. So, this is so interesting. So, yeah, of course. I mean, I came across Pachamama. I mean, I interviewed Lynn back in 2008 uh, or so when The Soul of Money came out. 
which was largely about her experience uh, at the Hunger Project, um, but certainly not only. And uh, just relationship to money as currency, as energy, etc. Um, and then got connected to the Pachamama Alliance back in uh, probably 2012, sort of a latecomer, except that I was in the Amazon myself in 1987 during harmonic convergence of Jose Arguelles as the, the author of The Mayan Factor, that you probably live next door to him too. I don't know. <laughs> but um, uh, you, no, you remember that door. period of time, right? Sure. <laughs> Understood. So uh, I was down in uh, Machu Picchu and in the Amazon back then when I had my own revelations about the seriousness of the situation and was hooked up with some indigenous, uh, Quechua-speaking um, uh, indigenous people who were doing what they could to acquire land and protect it from uh, being poached on and uh, exploited. So I, I had that back in the 80s, again, way after you were down there. But, you know, based on my age and everything else, that's just how it showed up. But I've been avidly connected to the rainforest and a lover of Pachamama ever since. So meeting the Pachamama Alliance was a natural for me. And, of course, then meeting the twists and you. So it's all part of a, a growing evolution for us all, I'd say, and the work that you are doing now, how would you describe, what, what are you spending most of your time on right now dealing with uh, the horrific, you know, um, environmental crisis we're, we're dealing with? You know, Mitchell, I, I teach in, in workshops and programs I do in, in this upcoming book about how each one mm-hmm. of us has a role to play in this. And yes. one of the most important things in defining our role is, is, is following our passion. Um, and because if we don't follow our passions, we're probably not really going to be successful. My passion is writing. I love to write. So I spend mm-hmm. most of my time writing. I you know, write a lot of books and articles and so forth. Yes. And also speaking and traveling around the world. I, 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 just a couple of months or so ago, I was speaking at a huge music festival in the Czech Republic. And I, you know, I spoke in Russia and China and all over the world. Yeah. Many, many places. And I love it. Things that range from this music festival to uh, corporate, corporate conferences. It's, it's amazing. So yeah, these days that's primarily what I do. I write and I, and I speak out and then I'm still Mm -hmm. involved with the Pachamama Alliance. I'm on their board. You know, I just saw you at the luncheon in New York. Of course, uh, just last week. Headed to the one, headed to the one in San Francisco next. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's what I do. I'm I'm working. My work is dedicated to uh, transforming this, what I call a death economy that that I helped create the economic system that's failing us to a life economy, one that will clean up pollution and regenerate destroyed environments and recycle and create new technologies that don't dig up the earth. Yes, yes. Oh, I hear you. I'm so glad to hear all of this, John, and your dedication and commitment has been remarkable over the course of so many decades. And, you know, your life is just so interesting because, it so went from like Darth Vader on some level to uh, one full of spirit and light and focus. And, you know, as you say, you're educating 
so many people. You reach so many people uh, worldwide that there really is. And so does Pachamama Alliance. Uh, there really is a rumbling taking place. While there's a crumbling, there's a rumbling. And um, I think it's very healthy what's going on. Um, I sort of wonder sometimes, we all wonder about each other sometimes, about why it took us, how long it took to see what we now see. But it is happening. And the same kind of revelation that occurred to you um, at that point you know, is really happening, and you are playing a significant role in helping that come around. What do you What do you feel uh, the indigenous people with whom you're in regular contact feel about what's happening worldwide? Do they feel that it's we're going to be able to turn the corner here, or what? Well, a common belief amongst indigenous people that I've been with, whether it's in Latin America or the Middle East or Asia or wherever, the United States and North America, um, is that uh, the world truly is as we dream it. That's the title of one of my books, that, that, that whatever we perceive, whatever we dream, yes. whatever, whatever we per- yes. perceive to, to be possible uh, creates our reality. So when you think yes. about it, there's no United States, there's no Ecuador, except, and there's no there's no corporation, there's no culture, yeah. there's no religion except as we perceive them. And when enough people accept the perception or codified into law, it becomes reality. And so they they truly believe that we can turn this around, that we can turn this death economy, which is based on short term maximization of short term profits and colonization mm-hmm. of other people to make that happen, to turn this around to reflect what they've always lived, which is the life economy, which is based on long-term benefits for everyone, not just human beings, but for all of the natural world and the all human world. All life, yeah. So it's it's just a change of perception from, from short-term maximization of material success to long-term maximization of planetary success, of, of success of life on this planet as we know it. Um, and, you know, so, you know, I, every year I take groups. I get, I'm taking a group to the Maya people of Guatemala in January. And incidentally, if any of your listeners are interested in joining me, I'd love to have them. There's still a few spaces available. They go to johnperkins.org and sign up. I also go to the Kogi people of Colombia in December. That that trip is full now. But all mm-hmm. of them, as well as going into the Amazon every year with Bill and Lynn and, as the co-founders trip of the Pachamama Alliance, Yes. All of these people are totally dedicated to helping us understand that we can turn it around, we must turn it around, and we can. All we really need to do is change our perception of what it means to be human on this planet. Yes. Instead of looking at the yes. short term, let's look at the long term. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what happened uh, to perception, but... There used to be a longer-term perspective on things like business and even in government. I remember growing up, John, when learning about the Soviet and the Chinese and the Japanese long-term 10- and 20-year plans for different, growing different aspects of their economy. And I always was struck why don't we here in the United States 
have these 5, 10, 15, and 20-year plans. I just never got it, you know. This is going to sound funny, but I think that television, this kind of goes to Marshall McLuhan, and the medium is the message and some of that idea. I think that television, commercials especially, help to shorten the – the uh, attention span of human beings and our nervous systems began to expect stimulus more rapidly, like gunfire, you know, in rapid succession. And if that isn't happening, then we feel that there's something wrong, that we're missing out on life. And the longer-term view of life altogether has gotten um, distorted as a result, like the beauty of sitting in contemplation during a sunset, for instance, is not something that you hear young people ever talk about. You, what are your thoughts? Do you think that has any possible? I know it may sound mm-hmm. far flung, but kind of interesting. Well, thought. no, I think that I think I think Mitchell that that's absolutely true. But and also, uh, there was a moment. It, in 1976, it turned everything around. Uh, Milton Friedman won the Nobel Prize in Economics. And perhaps yes. the most significant yeah. thing Friedman said was that the only responsibility of business is to maximize short-term profits regardless oh, yes. of the social and environmental costs. And Friedman was very popular. Uh, Reagan liked him. Thatcher liked him. Many, many world leaders bought into this, and so did corporate heads. So if you believe yes. that your only responsibility in business is to maximize short-term profits, You'll do everything to make that happen, especially if you only expect to have the job as CEO for four or five years, which most of them do. Uh, and, yes. And you'll do everything, including ravaging the very resources upon which your, the long-term future of your company depends. You don't care because you're going to be out and you're supposed to make short-term profits. You watch the stock market every single day. When I went to business school before 1976, we were taught it was blue-chip stocks. We were taught that you want to make a decent rate of return for your investors in the long term, you, people are mm-hmm. you in the long term, and we're, but yeah. we're also taught that in addition to profits, we were supposed to take good care of our employees, our, our customers, our suppliers, and local communities, and that mm-hmm. all changed in '76. It's thinking again, so though, you know, interesting. this past August, yes. this past August at the uh, meeting of 192 uh, very powerful executives from some of the world's largest corporations that. At the uh, at the at the conference round at the business roundtable, uh, they mm-hmm. said no longer should profits should maximization of profits be the single driving force. We need to really look at how we serve our customers, our suppliers. Exactly what what I was taught in business school. And you know we're seeing yes. B corporations, we're seeing conscious capital, Surely. and right. the, the the green social deal. entrepreneurism. Yes, right. Things Compassionate capitalism. I think we're, you know, I think we're getting through. You know, I, I take full credit yes. for all the good stuff that's going on. That that was a joke. <laughs> I, mean, I don't, I, I don't take full credit. No, 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 no. That's that. great. I love it. <laughs> Please take credit. I studied, uh, I studied neurolinguistic programming, John, with uh, one of its founders, Richard Bandler, and he used to say all the time, if there is anything like a miracle within a mile to of two or two of where you are. Take credit for it. <laughs> you did it. I always thought that was so fun and funny. <laughs> Why not? Yes. 
But no, I, I, your point is well made, and you're absolutely right. There is a, a trend that has been going on really for a while, uh, corporations for social responsibility, um, the social venture network, um, the donuts, if you remember them, were doing a lot of great work in Africa, uh, very wealthy people who are dedicating themselves to good works. Using business, by the way, using business as a vehicle for transformation and for world change, which I am wholly behind. I, I say to people all the time, it's really business that has brought us to the verge of disaster, and I think it's business and the mindset that is really behind it that's going to bring us back. So I, I am wholly behind what you're saying here. And it's interesting to me that you as the globetrotter that you are, are seeing this phenomenon, would you say, in many different uh, pockets of the world? Or do you see it mainly only in the Western countries? What What's your sense of that? It's happening everywhere. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, like I said, I, yeah, I, whether I'm in Latin America or Middle East or Asia or China, Russia, uh, Czech Republic, uh, wherever I am, uh, I'm. Yes. Uh, yes, I see this happening. People are everywhere are understanding that the system isn't working, that we need to change. But people fear change. You know, you yeah. and I and probably most of your listeners probably live pretty good lives. We want to talk about yes. change, but do we really want? Do we are we really willing to stick our necks out and make the necessary mm-hmm. changes? Are we yes. willing to give up our cars? Are we willing to do these things? And half the world's population can't even consider change. They all they consider is putting food on the table for the next meal yes. for their kids. And then yeah. there's a few people at the top who think the status quo is exactly the best thing in the world because they're making a lot of money off of it, and that's how they define mm-hmm. success. So change is tough, and that's where this idea of touching the jaguar comes in because the indigenous people tell us that whatever we feel, fear, we must go out and confront. And right now we fear change. And so all of us need to really understand that that fear, we've got to touch it. We've got to look at what does change mean? What does it mean for me as an individual? What does it mean for me as I relate to, the, to, 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 to my family, my, 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 my community, the world? And how do I get involved in this process of change in a way that will help create a life economy transform the death economy into a life economy. And it's very exciting because the life economy does not mean we go back to living in caves. It means that we, we do things like hire people, pay companies, pay Raytheon to, instead of making missiles, uh, come up with technologies that will clean up the plastic that's floating around in the oceans. And that's beginning to happen. And, and and we, we really put our, put our efforts into creating a world that regenerates uh, destroyed environments that regenerates everything that cleans up pollution and that creates new technologies that, that don't take out of the earth that give back that, that, that recycle shopping malls and so on and so forth. I mean, there's so many opportunities. It's so exciting and so many jobs waiting to be had yes. to do this yes. work. Very true. Well put. So we well put. Pay, we You're absolutely right. At, Please. We need to pay investors a decent rate of return to invest in the long-term future. In the long haul, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Well, 
you you have uh, what you were telling me about what your training was in business school is actually very uh, confirming and very heartening. I've never been to business school, but um, it was always my hope that that was what was being taught, and that this idea of short-term profit is an aberration in the longer haul of economic history, you know. Um, And you're citing uh, Milton Friedman's winning of the Nobel Prize for economics as the turning point in the overall thinking and then the habits that develop uh, really helps to elucidate where we started to go downhill. So, um, you know, I'm, of course, very familiar with that school and many of the people who have uh, followed in those footsteps and the way that showed up, actually, in Central and South America, you know, with Allende and, you know, Kissinger's role and all of that. And, you know, it just goes, and Pinochet, of course, and all of that. And look at what's going on right now in Chile, of all places. Right? Yes. I mean, it has repercussions. And Here we are in 2019. Yeah, exactly. And, and Mitchell, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to run because I, I I live on an island off the coast of San Juan. I have to catch a ferry. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I said 45 minutes, and we are 45 minutes right. to the minute. So, John right. Bergens, what a pleasure, my friend. Great to have you on. Um, will you come back on when uh, your book comes out and we'll – Go another round? I, I, I would love to. Please get in touch with me in June. Will do. Let's do it. Will do. Let's You'll do hear it. from me. All right. Thank you so much, johnperkins.org. Okay? Travel yes. safely. Keep Say hi your... to David Gordon for me, and we'll talk soon. Thank you. Keep up your great okay. work until getting the message out there. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Absolutely. Thank you, John. John Perkins, what uh, a true uh, delight and honor to have him as a guest on today's show talking about a <laughs> many lives, you could say, packed into one. Uh, and it's so interesting to take a larger view of our lives and see the way the paths that we go down, gain some impartiality toward them, allow our hearts, our conscience, our soul to rise up in our chest and speak to us on another level other than that we inherited or the conditioned mind or the consensus reality, if you will. John made general reference to that idea. And to step out boldly into what we feel is our life path and to pursue it with a passion. We love exemplifying things like that, those kinds of uh, truly archetypal, heroic movements in one's life. And uh, John, God knows, is one of those par excellence. So it's a true honor to have him sharing his life experience. And it's humbling. If you really think about it, can you imagine being part of setting, sending in jackals to kill people? I mean, for some of us, that is so outside of our ken, of our world. It's just like not within any sense or dimension we would have ever conceived But here we have one of the most heartfelt men who was, in fact, like we all are, 
conditioned to believe certain things for many different reasons and who was able to kind of catch himself in the act, pull back, see again, and say, you know what, I've had it. And then to take uh, whatever funds he managed to receive during that time period and reinvest it, Robin Hood, and come up with and help to support those people, those cultures, those tribes that have been so adversely affected by our psychoeconomic purview, if you will. I've never used that phrase before. Our psychoeconomic purview, which is, of course, a, uh, a fancy way of saying our screwed up way of looking at the earth as a basically a receptacle of resources for those who can grab it and run with them. And what couldn't be more different than the indigenous worldview of this land is all of ours and we all have our place on it um, and we will make peace with it and live in harmony with it as well. So, my God, we're all human. God knows, indigenous and otherwise. And we're all indigenous anyway. But to watch how we can transform and build brotherhoods and sisterhoods with people from entirely different cultures is a remarkable and glorious human experience. And on that note, I'll actually just share with you that uh, the Pachamama Alliance fosters these kinds of relationships, as I'm sure the other work that John does when he brings groups to Guatemala and elsewhere. And as he said, he has a few openings still available. And even in the Pachamama Alliance luncheons that we have in New York City and San Francisco, every year, uh, the leaders of the Achuar have been brought up to meet with us, to hug us, to shake hands with us, to look in the eyes of one and the other, to smile together, and to embrace each other, in short, and with thanks and gratitude to each other's tribes, if you will. And it's beautiful. It's a beautiful moment where people of different backgrounds come together and realize that we share a common vision and a common goal of protecting and preserving and advancing, evolving human and sentient life on the planet. So, my friends, I'm so glad you joined again today and tuned into a Better World Radio podcast. And, uh, you know, share this with your friends so more and more people can get the benefit of what it is we're doing here and what we stand for here at A Better World, which, well, the name kind of gives it away, doesn't it? And uh, our sentiments should be mightily clear. Health of self, health of planet, well-being of self, well-being of planet. It's one. It's not separate. Take care of self. Take care of other take care of planet. It's one big circle. 
So on that note, I want to just thank all of you for listening. We, too, are a nonprofit, and your contributions, your donations, your investments in a better world uh, help keep us on the air and expanding our platform. So anyone interested and ready to jump in in that regard, please contact me directly at my personal email address of mjr at abetterworld.net. That's MJR, my initials, at abetterworld.net. And we have a series of different types of services from coaching and counseling and executive coaching and uh, computerized applied kinesiology, uh, balancing all the energy fields in the body, um, honestly, using a high-tech computer. It's very cool stuff. And I do this with people all over the world. We do Skype, phone, WhatsApp. It's easy. And uh, I've had clients as far away from New York as Australia. So all is possible in our world. And I feel very encouraged by what John was sharing with us uh, about the changes that he sees as he travels the planet and sees that there really is this turnaround of mind. We see it in the youth movement, thank God. We see it in my generation's thank God. Uh, Some of us have been at this. Well, I've probably really been at it since I was 14 years old. I did not have that life-changing pivot that many people have. I kind of came out of the womb this way. I don't know why, but uh, I think I had some good parental influences and others in growing up. And uh, also just uh, was always sort of out of the womb, out of the box. It just seemed like it was a part and parcel of the same thing. So, But everybody's got a different life journey, and this is mine, and this is ours, and I am so happy to share what we have here at A Better World with all of you. Remember, we are also on television every Monday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time in Manhattan. It can also be accessed at that same time uh, through our website, abetterworld.tv. If you do not yet receive our free weekly newsletter, go to the website, abetterworld.tv, and you'll see uh, an opportunity to sign up for the newsletter and for more on the level of coaching and counseling services, go to www.mitchellrabin.com, M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L-R-A-B-I-N.com. This is Mitchell J. Rabin. Thanks for joining, and I look forward to seeing you all next week. 